Hi, and welcome to another lecture for the history section of Japanese 100. Uh, today we're going to focus on interwar Japan. That's Japan in between World War I and World War II, so roughly in 1920 to 1931, maybe 1937, depending on who you ask, but we're going to stop with, you know, mostly with 1931. Um, and also talk about the so-called Dark Valley uh, of the 1930s. Uh, as always, we'll start with a little bit of review uh, about last time. So last time uh, we talked about the invention of uh, the sort of modern monarchy. Uh, we talked about the 21 demands uh, and the rising tensions between Japan and its neighbors, uh, in particular in this case, China. Uh, also the increasing sense, uh, and I think realistically, uh, in Japan, uh, in Japanese leadership, uh, in the media, in the public, uh, that on the one hand, uh, Japan had sort of proved its uh, worth uh, and its status uh, as an imperial power, as a modern civilized nation, uh, and in part it did so through uh, empire, uh, but also on the other hand that it was up against a sort of glass ceiling of Western racism. And remember, this was not a new idea, right? So uh, it's just being enforced over and over. Um, we also took some time to think specifically uh, about the colonization of Korea uh, and sort of its evolution over time and how Korea for Japan, though it was on the one hand this sort of uh, symbolic piece of empire that uh, fits into that picture of Japan as modern and civilized and just like the Western powers and so on and so forth, um, is also a little bit complicated, right? Because Korea is culturally, ethnically, uh, close to Japan, it's also geographically close to Japan, so it's a very different sort of empire. Uh, and I specifically wanted to just remind you uh, that this uh, transformation uh, of the modern emperor uh, and the modern emperor sort of system or institution is, uh, you know, symbolic of the whole transformation of Meiji. And, and it's a sort of shorthand way to remember the kind of deliberate changes uh, that Japan is making. So if you can sort of keep this, in, this well, pair of images um, in your head and expand this out to think about sort of the whole nation, right? And the emperor is sort of a personification of that. Uh, you're on a pretty good track. Okay, so today we're going to talk about um, interwar Japan, and I want to start off uh, by pointing out that this is very much uh, a story of a nation divided. So whereas in the Meiji period, and right, and the reason I ended with that, right, uh, with the image of the the, well, the images of the emperor, um, there's this sort of sense of unity. Right, at least looking back, and I think largely um, there is a significant sense of unity in terms of national purpose uh, or something like that um, in the Meiji period. And some of that is defensive, right? It's this feeling of uh, if we don't all pull together, uh, Japan is going to be crushed, destroyed, etc. That really begins to fall apart, um, and it begins to fall apart in. Uh, you know, at least in part because of Japan's successes in sort of overcoming that period of massive crisis that begins in the 19th century. So by the time you get to the 1920s, um, you have a very complicated modern nation. Uh, all modern nations are complicated to some extent or another, right? And so I don't mean to suggest that Japan is unique in this sense, but uh, it is important to realize the degree uh, of complexity 
of internal division is extremely high and also somewhat determinative of the history. So, like I said, we're thinking about the interwar years, the period between the two world wars. Um, and it is one of the most difficult, sort of confusing periods in Japanese history. Uh, and so it kind of gets its own, most of its own little lecture here. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, so you see this great sort of flowering of cosmopolitan culture and uh, internationalism. Um, and then right on the heels of that, you get militarism and illiberalism in the 30s and 40s. Um, and it's often hard to sort of see how the two fit together. So I, I want to start thinking about the 1920s and the 1930s you know, on their own terms, um, not as a kind of waiting room for the Dark Valley, uh, you know, the sort of long war period ahead, um, but instead to sort of understand this period on its own terms and see how complicated it was then. And I think that helps to bridge this gap. Uh, between the sort of late Meiji and then the 1930s. So um, we don't want to, as I said, sort of think of this uh, period as just a sort of hiatus or interregnum uh, waiting for the Dark Valley. That's the so-called, that's the fallacy of so-called Taisho democracy, or in Japanese, Taisho democracy. Uh, and this is a, a, an invented term which suggests that somehow the democracy, the liberalism, the cosmopolitanism of this period is not real, right? It, it needs scare quotes. Um, it, it's, and, it, and in that sense, it's not strong, but it's weak. Uh, this is, uh, you know, sometimes people talk about the difference between civilization in Meiji, this very sort of active, masculine, yang principle, and then culture in the Taisho period, which is this very sort of weak, effete, feminine, inactive, yin principle. Obviously, you can tell I think this is nonsense. Um, and I, I think we really need to get away from that kind of stereotype. On the other hand, we don't want to be sort of blinded by the uh, affluent, um, interesting cosmopolitan culture of the cities and forget about everything else that's going on as well. Because that is the other side of the fallacy, is sort of only seeing the good and sort of not picking up the signals, right? Because there are flashing red lights in the system uh, during this period. So um, what I'm going to suggest is, in other words, to take the interwar period seriously on its own terms, uh, trying as best as we can not to sort of see it through the lens of the 30s and 40s, which come after it. Uh, the Japanese fiction author, um, Murakami Haruki, wrote, and actually was writing about this period, um, this may be the most important proposition revealed by history. At the time, no one knew what was coming. And this is a really important thing for historians to remember, right? Uh, this is the, the idea of contingency, that things are not predestined. Uh, historians are generally not Calvinists. Uh, we don't believe in predestination. But it's sometimes hard to get out of that as a sort of trap. Okay, with all those warnings out of the way, uh, we're going to take a step back uh, quickly to think about the sort of end of World War I and the lessons uh, that politicians on the one hand and military men on the other hand took from World War I and an important incident in its aftermath. Um, because these fundamentally shape uh, some, of, some of the course of domestic and international politics in the 1920s. 
So um, you get a brief interlude of uh, party government in the interwar period. Uh, and this starts with um, Hara Takashi, who's referred to as the first commoner prime minister, which is dumb because he's really not. But anyway, um, he's the first prime minister who is a party in other words, political party-affiliated prime minister, not one of these oligarchs or something like that. And everybody in his cabinet, which is formed in fall of 1918, uh, right after World War I, uh, everyone in the cabinet, except for the army, navy, and foreign ministers, are all party politicians. So this is the first time you have stable party government in Japanese history. Um, and as I said, he's not the actually a commoner. He comes from a privileged background. Uh, he was a, from a well-off ex-samurai family. But anyway, uh, he's also, oh, by the way, he's also the first Christian to be Japanese prime minister, um, but he's not the first to be assassinated. Um, and he's assassinated in 1921, uh, and he's succeeded by the finance minister. And so you have, the, you go back to this sort of oligarch appointed so-called transcendental, in other words, non-party cabinets. And you have kind of go back and forth on this, right? And so this is already a signal that um, party government, sort of this sort of uh, ideal liberal form of government really isn't quite working. Uh, it works sometimes, it doesn't work other times. And if when it's working, then it stops working because you have government by assassination, especially after 1932. Um, and so, it, Already there's a sort of political turmoil here that we want to be uh, attuned to. Uh, despite this instability of party government throughout the 1920s, um, and also some of the things we're going to be talking about, like an urban-rural divide, uh, problems about voting, uh, about socialism, about gender, etc., Japan's commitments to multilateralist peace on the world stage um, were quite firm throughout the decade. But not before this, what you're seeing on screen here, which is this incident uh, that should have been probably, in, in, again, it's in retrospect, right? We should have been more worried at the time about this. Um, this is the 1918 to 1922 Siberian intervention. Uh, and this is an event that highlighted uh, the difficulty for the civilian government of keeping the military in, in check, right? Keeping, uh, keeping a, a firm hold on the military. So what happened? Well, Japan sent the largest contingent of soldiers to participate in an effort by allied forces uh, in Siberia to reopen the Eastern Front uh, in the wake of a detente between Germany and the new Soviet Union. Uh, and <clears throat> Japan's sort of purpose here was to overthrow the new socialist government, right? The new Soviet Union. Uh, as I said before, uh, Japanese leadership has, from the start, been incredibly anti-communist and anti-socialist. And so any chance to overthrow this new government and put in the so-called white Russian, in other words, of capitalist, oligarchic, uh, uh, government sort of, you know, uh, was welcome. So Japan sends the largest contingent to uh, Vladivostok. Uh, and uh, this is, so in response to a request for 7,000 troops from the American president, uh, Woodrow Wilson, uh, Japan sends 12,000. Uh, and then uh, you get up to 70,000. Uh, so 
that's kind of maybe a little bit over eager and uh, the, the, the Japanese remain even after everyone else pulls out. All the other allies leave and Japan stays to back uh, the white Russians. And um, this, it's not until October of 1922 that Japan finally withdraws. And it's sort of ignominious. It's a little bit of a pullout like the American pullout from Afghanistan, which is obviously on my mind since it's just going on right now. Um, and Tokyo continues, though, to support these sort of conservative warlords in northeast China, southern Siberia kind of area uh, against the communists even after that. But all in all, this Siberian intervention is a failure, right? It doesn't overthrow the Soviets. Uh, it's unpopular at home. It's a huge waste of money. People die. Again, think Afghanistan. Um, and it also makes Japan's uh, standing in the world go down, right? Uh, so you lose 3,000 troops, you spend all this money, it's unpopular at home, the army's not a, you know, it actually hurts the army's popularity at home, and the Soviet Union, the British, the French, the Americans are also kind of pissed about the whole thing, frankly. So, bad. But the, the, it's interesting to think about then why it sort of happens and what lessons the military draws from it. So Paul Dunscombe, who's a historian who's written a, a good book in English on this, um, pointed out that the most important lessons uh, that were both learned and not learned, I guess, by the military uh, from this really abject failure uh, were first, uh, on the one hand, the military failed to learn that it, you can't win counterinsurgency again the parallels with Afghanistan and all these other things are sort of obvious, so I won't belabor them here. Um, and, and so, but again, the, uh, as the Americans failed to learn this lesson from Vietnam and then repeated it in Afghanistan, Japan fails to learn it in uh, Siberia and repeats it in China in the 1930s, which is something we'll talk about in future lectures. Uh, and what they, what they learned instead of counterinsurgency, bad, not possible, was um, a kind of what's sometimes called a stab in the back theory. In other words, that weakness on the home front and the people's failure to grasp the importance of Japan's imperial mission had undercut the military's morale and eroded the nation's ability to pursue the contest uh, in Siberia to a favorable resolution. The other thing is that while perhaps it's going too far to claim that the junior officers who were later responsible for uh, the Manchurian incident, which we'll talk about in the second half of this uh, lecture, and which sort of catapults Japan out of the international community and toward a sort of long-term war, uh, eventually World War II. Um, so rather, it might be going too far to claim that those junior officers had acquired the habit of insubordination in Siberia. Uh, their superiors uh, who condoned and encouraged those actions definitely did. And there are others, there's some other people, uh, Danny Orbach is one of them, who argue that in fact insubordination was a fundamental part of the Japanese army right from the very beginning. Uh, in any case, uh, the Japanese army blamed the wishy-washy politicians and the weak civilians at home for their own failures. In other words, they didn't realize that you can't win counterterrorism and counterinsurgency without overwhelming local support. Japan would never have that in Siberia, and it would never have that in China. Uh, this also, uh, this Siberian incident also, uh, as I've hinted, revealed the impossibility of exercising civilian control. And there's a, there's a really important structural reason for this. 
The emperor was considered to wield the so-called right of supreme command. In other words, the emperor was the commander-in-chief, independent of the civilian legislature. Now, in practice, this meant that unless the emperor chose to directly interfere in military affairs, and he really never did, except once or twice uh, with domestic terrorism in the 30s, there were no legal constraints on the military. And this was very bad, of course. But if anything, the problem is actually even worse than that. Uh, Benami Shiloni explains it this way. The principle of the independence of the supreme command not only prevented civilian control over the armed forces, but also enabled both chiefs of, both chiefs of staff, uh, army and navy, to remain independent of each other, as well as of their service ministers. Uh, so nobody is fully in control of the armed forces. Uh, the army and navy are working independently of each other and are often actually in a rivalry with each other. Uh, but nobody seems to be able to exert control because you can't uh, exert control over the military without taking control from the emperor, which is fundamentally no good. So uh, that's a bad, bad precedent for the kind of lack of control that you're going to see over the army uh, and the navy in the 30s and 40s. Um, one reason, though, that the, so, I mean, if it's this important, right, I've sort of spent some time on the Siberian intervention, why, you know, you've probably never heard of it. Um, and one reason for this is that the Siberian intervention uh, actually, because it happens in the aftermath of World War II, it's kind of overshadowed, excuse me, World War I, it's overshadowed by everything else that's going on, right? So a new world seems to be dawning. And among the most important provisions of the 1919 Treaty of Versailles, which ended World War I, of course, uh, was the establishment of the League of Nations, which, you know, is the precursor to the UN. So the American president, Woodrow Wilson, uh, sort of outlined these 14 points. Uh, the French uh, president at the time is reported to have said God himself only had 10, but that's beside the point. Um, but Wilson had uh, envisioned a kind of multilateral capitalist peace and also national self-determination uh, as a new system to replace the sort of secret treaties and oppressive multinational empires of the world that had come before and had led, in his vision at least, uh, to uh, World War I. So uh, it, it's ultimately the vision of Wilson, uh, not, for example, Vladimir Lenin, uh, that shapes the political diplomatic and economic institutions of a new global community in the 20s. So let's take a look at a couple of the most important points, some of which you may already be familiar with uh, from, for example, high school history or other history classes. Uh, so just briefly, I think the most important of the 14 points are numbers one through five and then number 14. So Wilson called for open covenants of peace and open diplomacy, for absolute freedom of navigation, for the removal of all economic barriers, for arms reduction to the lowest point consistent with domestic safety, for the principle of national self-determination, and for basically the League of Nations, right? An association of nations. Um, despite some outrage in Japan uh, that a racial equality clause which Japan had proposed was rejected, um, Japan nevertheless becomes a charter member of the League. And if, and if you think about that, this is, this is ironic, right? The Japanese were 
upset about the whole thing and still became a founding member of the League. The United States, which President Wilson, you know, is actually the person who basically proposes the League of Nations, the U.S. never becomes a member. Um, so there's already some weirdness going on here. Uh, but why does Japan, even with its reservations, become a League member and a founding one at that? Well, the defeat of the German Empire, the collapse of Tsarist Russia, um, had had a really big impact on the political elite and the intelligentsia, uh, who suddenly were more skeptical of the possibility of autocratic military regimes, right, which had been the losing side of World War I. Right? After all, it was the democratic allied powers that had defeated the Austrian, the German, and the Russian autocracies, which were unrepresentative empires. And moreover, it was limited family and regional alliances rather than broad-based multilateralism that had dragged the world into the bloodiest conflict in history. So, so in this sense, the Japanese elites are sort of seeing the world the same way that Wilson did. Well, given this and the birth of the League, it seemed that democracy and international cooperation would be the way forward, uh, at least in international politics. Uh, the old world order of unilateralism, of empire, of autocracy, had failed. And the might-makes-right doctrine which had dominated the 19th century world was no longer viable. And in its place, you would get participation in open, multilateral democracy as the sign of a civilized power in this new post-World War I world. And Japan, as it had done since the middle of the 19th century, would basically follow the trends of the world. Um, and so the, the Japanese uh, political elites aggressively support this new world order, and they set Japan on a new trajectory of peaceful internationalism. During the 20s, even under some of the more conservative prime ministers, uh, Japan eventually approves universal suffrage, suffrage uh, voting rights for everybody, uh, participates in all of the major international arms reduction treaties, and remains a solid central force in the League of Nations. Now, some see this newfound commitment to internationalism as shallow, especially because it breaks down very easily uh, and very quickly in the 1930s. I'd like to suggest that that's probably not accurate. So there's at least two reasons for this. Um, one is it, it discounts the internal conflict in the 1920s between liberal internationalism and uh, sort of militarist conservatism within Japanese society, and also between the civilian government on the one hand and the armed forces on the other. And that's something we're going to talk about a little bit more as the lecture progresses. Um, the other thing is that uh, my other reason for sort of objecting to that characterization is it discounts self-interest. So after the Treaty of Versailles, um, as uh, the historian Fred Dickinson has shown, the imperialism of the long 19th century was no longer the mark of a civilized nation, right? And I've already sort of said that. Um, but what that meant was that if Japan was to remain a great power, it was imperative to be a cooperative participant in multilateral internationalism. This was clearly in Japan's self-interest. And self-interest is sincere. Nobody is ever more sincere than when they are acting in their own self-interest. So rather than considering the abrupt turn of Japan's party politicians and civil bureaucracy uh, toward the League of Nations and the associated ideals of multilateralism and you know, treaties and so on and so forth, rather than seeing that as cynical or, or shallow, 
Um, I want to say that it's probably just better to see it as self-interest. Um, so, yeah, maybe I'll just sort of leave it at that. But in other words, for Japan, it's a win-win, right? Uh, on the other hand, though, the military learns some very different lessons from World War I uh, and also from the uh, Siberian intervention. Uh, the military overall is deeply disturbed by the arms reduction of the 1920s, which the civilian government uh, engages in as a part of this multilateralism, the League of Nations and all that stuff. Uh, so reduced budgets, uh, reduced status for the army and navy uh, are obviously not going to make the army and navy very happy. But also, military planners genuinely feared that politicians were working against national interests, right, against national security, and leaving Japan open to foreign attacks. So for the uh, officers at all levels of the military, what the Great War teaches is that Japan is not ready to engage the world in war. Uh, Japan is, is not technologically advanced enough to fight with the European powers. Japan watches the war in Europe happen and goes, oh boy, we'd better never have a war with them because we're absolutely going to lose or we need to build up our military. Well, and the obvious answer is we need to build up, build up our military. So they believed that both the army and navy were undermanned, under-equipped, uh, and just completely unready compared to their Western counterpoints, count, excuse me, counterparts. Um, and also that they were especially technologically very far behind because the new and terrible weapons that had been brought to bear on the fields of Europe uh, were terrifying, and they, the Japan had no way to engage with that. On the other hand, there's an important sense in which the two groups, the civilians uh, and the military, do agree. Um, as one politician, uh, Ozaki Yukio, put it, until now, the great powers pursued armed peace with unthinkably terrifying results. The solution was uh, where the military and civilian uh, elites diverged. Right? So they agreed on the problem, but they didn't agree on the solution. So politicians, on the one hand, saw the need for disarmament and peacemaking, uh, for creating what's sometimes called capitalist peace or democratic peace. And the army, and to some extent the navy as well, sees the opposite, right? It sees the need to build up um, weapons and techniques and technology uh, because politics always fails and the military has to always be ready. So uh, when the... Japanese government eagerly accepts an invitation to uh, these various treaty negotiations, in particular the Washington Conference of 1922, which uh, are uh, their purpose is to do arms reduction treaties. Um, this is this is a sort of moment of crisis for the military. So, in addition to reaffirming the open door and uh, open door policy in China, a major outcome of the Washington Conference. Uh, was a, a, an ostensible end to the arms race between Great Britain, the U.S., and Japan. Uh, Japan accepts a 5-5-3 ratio of warship capacity, and this is tonnage, um, in exchange for a promise that the Brits and the Americans would not build up naval fortifications in the Pacific. In other words, Japan will have a smaller fleet, but uh, the U.S. and Great Britain will not sort of encroach on Japanese uh, territory. It's not exactly territory, but uh, this sphere of maritime special interest. So following this, the Japanese government continues to slim down and modernize its military throughout the rest of the decade. Uh, in addition to decreasing the influence of the military, 
In the short run, at least, this also uh, reduces the military spending from a shocking 55% of the national budget in 1918 to under 40% by 1924. Um, and some of this is related to other things, but military spending goes down uh, as a proportion of the budget. Um, and some of the savings is actually, uh, as the military had, had hoped, directed toward purchasing modern weapons, right? You're sort of uh, removing service members and replacing them with modern weaponry. Uh, so, so as far as that goes, there's some sort of, um, you know, there's a sop to the military, right? Uh, it's not completely what, like, against their, their interests. Uh, simultaneously, the army minister, and this is kind of interesting, implements mandatory military education in junior high and high schools to increase public support for the military. Again, learning that lesson from the Siberian intervention. Okay, so I want to take a step away from uh, World War I and think about the culture of uh, the interwar period. And again, I want to stress that uh, the country is deeply divided. And this is on lines that are often urban-rural, uh, politically liberal-illiberal, etc. So we're sort of back to this point here. Um, the most important thing maybe to know uh, is that, yes, it's deeply divided. Um, and these divisions, uh, you know, they surface at various times, right? Sometimes they're more severe, sometimes they're less severe. The most important cause of this is this, this sort of split after World War I. Uh, so some of that is economic, and I actually want to start with thinking about the economic effects of World War I, right? Because it's not just something that has lessons for politicians and lessons for the military. It's something that has tangible economic effects. And for most Japanese, it's these economic effects that really shape daily life. Um, The economy expands enormously during the war years, but then there's a stock market crash in 1920. Basically, the economy gets overheated, and then it kind of limps along through the rest of the decade. It's, it's very up and down, and that instability is really unpleasant, right? So it's not a question of exactly what the numbers are. It's a question of how people experience those numbers, and what they experience is instability. Uh, they experience uh, a level of anxiety that makes life very unpleasant for a lot of people. So on the one hand, you have sort of um, cosmopolitan consumer culture flourishing in the cities with cafes and department stores and modern girls, as they were called, uh, sort of taking center stage. But in the countryside, especially, the situation is entirely different. The villages are being sort of drained. You have a brain drain, as they call it, um, and they're being left behind as the cities move forward. Uh, and then you have these kind of social and economic developments are catalyzed by the 1923 earthquake, uh, September of 1923, which absolutely devastates the Tokyo region. Um, but the fundamental sort of driver of change is probably the, the, the war itself. Uh, so let's think about sort of how we get into thinking, uh, sort of dealing with the uh, economy in the 1920s. Uh, the economy, the reason to do this is that it, it provides a nice underpinning, a nice foundation for talking about a lot of what's important in the period. Uh, so during the war years, Japan's industrial output more than quadruples. Uh, like Japan, the United States seemed to benefit uh, from the crisis in Europe, 
And as the great European powers destroyed the human, cultural, and material resources of a continent, uh, the American economy boomed, and so did Japan's. In other words, war in Europe transformed Japan from a net importer of foreign capital to a net exporter of goods to both Europe and Asia. Um, but it didn't begin that way. Uh, so the Japanese economy was undergoing a recession when the First World War broke out. And the situ situation actually gets worse first uh, because it, this sudden reduction in uh, foreign trade really hurts the Japanese economy. Uh, the price of rice and other grains continued to drop. You have this deflationary uh, spiral until mid-1916. And then the trend is reversed. Um, and uh, that actually becomes a problem because uh, you end up having hyperinflation of rice, which we'll talk about a little bit. Uh, Japanese exports begin to rise from the middle of 1915 uh, as the belligerent nations in Europe are unable to supply goods to foreign markets. So Japan is selling war supplies and also other necessary, uh, necessities to the allied nations, and at the same time increasing its exports to nearby Southeast Asia, also North and South America. Uh, in 1915, exports reached an unprecedented uh, 700 plus million yen, and they continued to increase. They reached 1.96 billion yen, so almost 2 billion yen in 1918, right? So if you think about it, Japan first breaks 700 million yen in 1915. And three years later, it's almost three times that much. Um, so exports to Asian markets in particular, which had been abandoned by the European powers who were very busy in foxholes killing each other, uh, helped Japan to find new markets for its industrializing economy. So export growth results in massive cash inflows, about 1.8 billion in 1915 to 1919, um, which spurs the industrialization of the Japanese economy, but also causes really troubling, really damaging inflation after 1915. By the end of the war, the inflation rate is about 30, is over 30%. Uh, so you have you know, new companies popping up all over the place, especially in the cities, but many of them also failing. Um, and at this, but because you have all this new demand in the cities, uh, you have brain drain from the countryside where, uh, and labor drain as well, because these new firms require additional labor. So you have enormous migration from the countryside, especially of young people. And that means that you have a corresponding drop in the number and also the percentage of Japanese involved in primary industries, right? Agriculture, fishing, mining, etc., which were much less urban in their character. So this wartime boom, as I suggested, um, it gives you enormous expansion in the economy and then uh, increased circulation for currency, greater demand for goods, and inflation. So as is usually the case, the, the rapid increase in prices is not immediately followed by a rise in wages. Uh, so real wages are declining, right? They're not just stagnating, but they're actively declining, right? So you're, you know, let's say you're making 100 yen. Uh, that 100 yen doesn't buy as much as it did a couple years earlier, even a couple months earlier. Uh, and your boss is not giving you a raise to meet the changing cost of living. So this uh, doesn't make people happy, as you can imagine, uh, and strikes, even though they were illegal, steadily increased in number as a result of the tremendous economic pressures on you know, everyday Japanese. And the most dramatic consequence of inflation is the rice riots of 1918. 
Um, you may have heard that Japan eat, you know, Japanese people eat a lot of rice. Um, that's actually a fairly new thing in the 1910s. Um, that's a whole different story, but uh, rice is an important crop. And so when the price of rice doubles between January 1917 and July 1918, uh, other commodities rose similar amounts, um, that causes a lot of problems for a lot of people. During the last week of July 1918, rice shops in some cities saw a 60% jump in price within only a single uh, a single uh, week, or sorry, excuse me, a single month. Um, and this precipitated the largest, most widespread chain reaction of civil disturbances in Japanese history. This paroxysm of riots, demonstrations, and strikes uh, and they begin in a small fishing village on the Japan Sea coast and end up engulfing the entire archipelago for 50 days. Uh, so in this little uh, uh, fishing village in Toyama Prefecture, uh, you can see Toyama is right here on the Japan Sea coast. Um, so women in this, in this little fishing village uh, are angry that the price of rice is being manipulated by speculators on the market. And they gathered to protest the shipment of local rice off to Osaka, which was the sort of financial hub of Japan, uh, where it was being, you know, where it had been bought up by speculators. Their fury, uh, which is probably justified, um, caught fire around Japan when it was reported in the news. And uh, estimates range uh, quite widely, and they're pretty unreliable. But it's almost certain that several million people. Uh, took part in these uh, 520 or so separate protests. Uh, and they were in every prefecture in Japan between August 9th and the end of September. Uh, Michael Lewis, author of the authoritative work on the subject, um, from which I'm drawing a lot of this information, wrote, crowds streaming from urban mass rallies, which in cities like Nagoya, which is, by the way, where I used to live, uh, drew from 40,000 to 50,000 people. Uh, also attempted to take their demands to prefectural and central government officials. In areas where such attempts were stifled, full-scale street battles broke out between crudely armed rioters and heavily armed troops and police. Uh, <clears throat> Tsurima Park, uh, which was in my old neighborhood, uh, was the location of the first major Nagoya incidents. Uh, on August 10th, 30,000 people gathered around the park's bandstand. One newspaper ran the headline, Myriad Casualties, Nagoya Rice Riot. Another read, Nagoya also in danger, mob of 30,000 in Tsunuma Park, um, and reported that as the crowd marched to, to the uh, rice merchant's district, it destroyed street lights, uh, plunging the whole city into darkness. And the August 9th and 10th protests became something of a model and inspiration for angry Japanese elsewhere as the protesting spread. So it's not just because it was my neighborhood, but it, actually important. Um, eventually, about uh, what was it, uh, 8,185 8, uh, individuals were prosecuted for participating in the rice riots all around uh, Japan. Uh, and it's a diverse cross-section of the Japanese population. Uh, it's not just the poor and the outcasts and the far left, etc. Uh, it's really kind of uh, everybody. Uh, yeah. Um, so, so let's uh, think about what this all means, right? Uh, because the rice riots uh, were this, this moment where you have this kind of 
uh, you know, right, right here, you have massive inflation, right? And you have this enormous um, domestic uprising, right? Uh, but despite uh, the signs such as the rice riots that the benefits of the wartime boom were spread very unevenly, uh, Japan had vastly enhanced its international financial standing by the end of the war. So in 1913, Japan had 1.1 billion yen of debt. By the end of the war, in fact, by, sorry, by late 1920, before the crash, uh, Japan has a surplus of 2 billion. So it's a turnaround of 3 billion yen. Um, Japan had actually become a creditor. It was loaning money out instead of being in debt. On the other hand, as I've said, the wartime boom doesn't last. And as a result of the crash, the whole decade of the 20s is just very rocky. Um, and you go from the stock market crash in Japan in 1920 up to the stock market crash in 1929 in New York. And so it's just a bad decade. Um, but it's also a typical decade if you think about the boom-bust cycle of modern capitalism. Uh, the bubbly economy of the war years encourages expansion and speculation, which leads to overextension. And then you have financial austerity measures, which are implemented to balance the country's accounts. Um, and that makes the money dry up. And over the space of just a few months in 1920 and 1921, prices for stocks and commodities just they dip really sharply, leading to a slew of major trading concerns, factories and even banks going bankrupt. Banks going bankrupt. Yes. Okay. Uh, so aggressive government intervention had begun to improve the situation. Uh, but then you have the 1923 Great Kanto earthquake, which uh, concentrated about 10 billion yen of losses in the capital area. Uh, it's in the Tokyo, Yokohama area, to be specific. Damage to critical private and public infrastructure made recovery really difficult. Um, but Japan's good, new, you know, sort of newly good credit history made it possible to get loans from the U.S. and Britain to begin financing reconstruction. So overall, in the 1920s, you have this picture of instability and uncertainty, this sort of staccato of crises and panics. Um, and as economic historian Takafusa Nakamura put it, um, the chronologies of the Japanese economy of the 1920s often refer to this period as one of recurring panics of greater or lesser magnitude. But the, uh, the debts that accumulated uh, to private firms in the wake of the earthquake uh, caused another round of bankruptcies. The most famous of these is Suzuki Shoten, which is a big trading company. Uh, and when it uh, collapses, it leads to a full-on financial panic in 1927. So the, so the reason for this is Suzuki Shoten had received loans of 67 million yen from the Bank of Taiwan, which is essentially a national bank, right? Because Japan owns Taiwan as a colony. When Suzuki Shoten goes belly up, when it goes bankrupt, um, these become essentially uncollectible debts. And that creates a panic about the future of the Bank of Taiwan, which creates a panic, a panic about other financial institutions. And then there's a panic about the Bank of Japan. Uh, and then there's a run on the banks. Uh, about 11% of all savings were withdrawn during the panic. Um, and worse, as many companies continued to operate with negative revenue, they gradually became unable to pay back existing loans or to receive additional funding with good credit. So the flip side of this is that banks were increasingly saddled with bad debt. 
And this is a vicious cycle which destabilized the financial markets and, of course, kills off the public trust in the system. Um, if you know anything about the 2008 financial crisis, you can think of something on a, on a more local scale because it's mostly uh, you know, within the Japanese empire, but something along those lines. Uh, and what this does, among other things, is, is it allows the major Japanese uh, business conglomerates, the so-called zaibatsu, to snap up financially troubled businesses and their subsidiaries at super low prices. And what this also, the sort of consequence of that is that it increases the uh, tendency for economic concentration, right? Just under these few uh, uh, sort of these, these conglomerates, these zaibots, right? So they start to own everything. And they do it by sort of these predatory practices, which make them very unpopular. Um, so let's talk about the, the Panic of 1920 and its aftermath a little bit more. Uh, because during the World War I years, rice production was really high, and then you have uh, the oversupply, which drove prices down by 1920. Uh, and so, so, you know, in other words, in 1918, the cause of the rice riots had been this uh, speculation which drove rice prices way up. Well, then by 1920, you have them being driven way down. And while that's okay for consumers, it's terrible for producers. So along with then the collapse of the international silk market in the 1920s, which is a whole separate thing, uh, but the, the drop in rice prices is absolutely devastating for Japanese farmers uh, because those are the two cash crops, rice and silk, which a lot of Japanese farmers relied on. In response, the government uh, came, passed this law, the Rice Act in 1921, which gave control over rice purchasing sales and distribution to the government itself. Uh, this didn't do enough, and the Depression uh, after 1920 was really damaging to rural households. Um, silk prices on the Yokohama market crashed by more than 60% in just a half a year from March to August 1920. And the silk market just goes down uh, from there when the value of the yen uh, is really suppressed by the Great Kanto earthquake in 1923, and the government ends up selling off uh, a whole lot of Japanese yen in order to recover currency value. So the economic hardship uh, for Japanese farmers caused by this sort of double blow is a major contributor to the uptick in uh, labor disputes, its tenancy disputes, in other words, disputes about uh, who owns the land and who gets to farm what. Um, and when the silk industry is struggling, poverty and hardship in outlying rural districts of Japan becomes more or less a permanent feature of life. Uh, because silk is, as I've said, the primary non-rice cash crop for a lot of areas of Japan. Uh, silk prices never recover even when the economy overall does. Uh, so the sort of upshot of the whole thing is that even as economic conditions in the cities are moving back toward some kind of normalcy um, and even some in some cases doing quite well um, and in the late 1920s the rural areas are teetering on the edge right they're on the brink of just total collapse and in many cases their situation is not any better than it was uh, before the Meiji era and that's in sharp contrast to the life in the cities uh, because city life you know, it actually flourishes in spite of all of the continued crises of the national economy uh, and this increasing urban-rural divide. 
Um, it may actually be that it's not displayed, but because of, and that's a whole different question about the way that modern capitalism works. But anyway, um, the interwar years were, uh, you know, are often sort of seen through this lens of a thriving popular culture. Popular novels, magazines, newspapers, and the new media of radio and motion pictures disseminated culture uh, into the countryside and also into the lower levels of the cultural and intellectual spectrum. Uh, and I'm quoting from somebody here, but um, the expansion of a new white collar middle class pursuing a new lifestyle and culture concerned with personal autonomy and enjoyment and influenced by Western ideas and social practices introduced through the burgeoning mass media was another factor and consequence of this new atmosphere. Uh, one of the two most important cultural sites of interwar Japan then was the department store, uh, one of which is maybe the most famous of which is pictured here. This is Mitsukoshi in Ginza. Um, since the beginning of the 20th century, department stores had played a, a key role in the creation of uh, the hybrid, eclectic modern culture of Japan. For more than a century, um, you know, since, since the, the early 20th century, so, so uh, you know, over the past 120 years at least, these giant retailers have sort of positioned themselves as the purveyors of material and commodity culture. Um, but they've also sort of been cultural leaders as well. Uh, initially, they appeared uh, in the cities as sites in which uh, Japanese could participate uh, through consumption in this sort of national mission of civilization and enlightenment of bumme kaika. So bumme kaika through shopping, I guess. Um, we're not going to talk too much about the uh, history of uh, department stores. Uh, if you'd like to ask me about that, certainly you can. Uh, but it's I want to want to jump ahead to thinking about uh, how, how what happens to the department stores in 1923. Uh, this symbolic Mitsukoshi store uh, pictured here in Ginza was devastated. Um, and though the department stores had previously catered to a, an upscale clientele, um, after the disaster, they became increasingly popular with middle-class Japanese uh, in, in the cities, contributing to the sort of massification of Japanese consumer culture. Because with the earthquake, department stores began offering goods for everyday living rather than only expensive specialty or imported items, which is what they had previously been uh, uh, focused on. So the department store's con contribution to massification in this case came from a change of focus to the mass market, to selling modernity in the form of mass-produced merchandise at the lowest possible prices. And this was a cultural shift which uh, reached its fruition in the 1930s before the war sort of put that kind of uh, mass culture development on hold. Um, so especially before 1923, the space of the department store was, uh, as Brian Moran put it, a, a permanent fair, a site of spectacle and, uh, quote, a dream world where Western and thus bourgeois culture was on display. After 1923, after the earthquake, as Marius Jansen put it, uh, department stores became the symbol, indeed the temple, of a new era of mass consumption. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the earthquake itself. Um, because somewhat paradoxically, the massive potential for renewal, uh, for sort of cutting unwanted ties with the past, 
which was created by the earthquake, uh, which leveled and burned Tokyo and Yokohama, was a major force in creating that culture, uh, which we've just been talking about um, in the Yokohama and Tokyo area. Uh, and it contributed in a sort of perverse and terrible way to the growth and vitality of urban culture and economy in 1920s and early 1930s Japan. So the Great Kanto Earthquake. Two minutes before noon on September 1st, a gigantic 7.9 earthquake, 7.9 uh, magnitude earthquake hit the Kanto region. And the Kanto region is that area around Tokyo. Uh, more than 100,000 people died in the crush uh, of the earthquake itself and then the subsequent fires, which were actually probably more deadly, uh, which is a sort of constant throughout Japanese history that fire is uh, actually the thing that ends up killing people. Uh, the damage to the political and economic capital of the empire was unprecedented, uh, surpassing even the Anse earthquake of 1855, which had been quite awful. Um, and also coming as it did right as the uh, uh, black ships were messing around with Japan seemed like a very bad omen. Uh, it was. Um, anyway, some estimates put the number of homes destroyed at over a half a million. Japan's most important port city, Yokohama, also faced enormous damages and losses. So that really uh, shut down big parts of the Japanese economy. Uh, a decade later, the total damages were estimated at about a third of GDP. Uh, which would be more than $25 billion in today's terms. Of course, the numbers are a mix of sort of hard data and guesstimates, but um, so it's not 100% you know, accurate. But the point is that the destruction was on a scale that was unparalleled at the time. And also, a lot of it was concentrated in the so-called low city, the Shitamachi, these areas that were built on sediment and landfill uh, in the Tokyo Bay. Uh, and the the fact that the quake came at midday, uh, when there were a lot of people uh, cooking lunch, meant that, uh, and they were cooking lunch in their wooden houses when a 7.9 earthquake came, that's the reason there was so much fire. Um, narrow alleyways were clogged with debris, row homes collapsed, cutting off the chance of escape. Uh, and you have this uh, terrible phenomenon called the fire-nado. Uh, if you're not familiar with this word, it is a portmanteau, a combination of fire and tornado. Uh, you'll also hear it called a fire devil, sometimes just a firestorm. Um, fire nados are torrents of wind and flame burning at extremely high temperatures. So there are these fiery whirlwinds, and many of them swept through Tokyo and Yokohama, burning for days in some cases. Oh, and I should also mention that for good measure, the area was also struck by a 10 meter plus tsunami. So there's that. Altogether, uh, about three fourths of all of the residential buildings in the city, uh, about 570,000 or so, were destroyed. Martial law was imposed to keep some order. Uh, it didn't really work. Um, and, well, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it worked in, 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 it worked in its own way, uh, but you did have, uh, you know, in addition to the sort of normal things you'd think of, um, vigilante mobs lynching Koreans. Uh, and the reason for this, uh, and it was, uh, you know, nasty, essentially, you know, fake news, disinformation, rumor, you know, that sort of thing, rumors, some of which were spread by the police, which is, you know, kind of a problem, um, that Koreans had, were uh, somehow responsible for uh, some kind of terrorism. They had been poisoning the wells or something like that. And so, 
Uh, you had mobs of Japanese armed with homemade weapons such as bamboo spears, knives, whips, carpentry tools, um, broken glass, clubs, and wood sticks, fishing hooks, etc. Uh, and they're going after Koreans, and it's estimated that about uh, six, more than 6,000 out of the 20,000 or so Koreans in the Tokyo-Yokohama area were murdered. Uh, and there was a complete media blackout on it at the time and only show trials uh, later. So we really don't have a lot of details. In any case, the physical and economic damage and the loss of life made the Kanto earthquake one of the worst disasters in modern Japanese history um, and one of the first international disaster spectacles in a major industrialized world power. So it was transmitted around the world more or less in real time. Um, and so it's, it's a very sort of important um, event in media history in that sense as well. Anyway, uh, Reconstruction is declared to be complete in 1930, but not really. Uh, if nothing else, there, uh, I mean, that's very optimistic. But then there's also the sort of PTSD element of the emotional scars. Uh, so for a little while at least, uh, economic activity in Tokyo and Yokohama basically came to a standstill. But Reconstruction offered opportunities, unfortunately many of which were not taken, uh, for a kind of state-of-the-art cultural and economic rebirth, right? And that's what that Reconstruction that's supposedly over in 1930 is all about. Um, and, and there are there, there, there's a lot uh, that's positive about the Reconstruction. Uh, the post-quake era of urban efflorescence, uh, which results, is symbolized by the appearance of almost endless cafes and drinking establishments in the cities, uh, which become the new centers of urban life for the middle classes. Uh, in the fashionable Ginza district, where uh, the department store was as well, Mitsukoshi, the number of cafes increased by 150% between 1922 and 1929. And as modernity and the modern was increasingly associated with American things, such as speed, movies, and jazz, in the words of one historian, uh, the cafes and cinemas and department stores of the cities increasingly became the sort of epicenter of a cosmopolitan uh, consumer culture, and also, of course, of the conservative backlash that came along with that. So modern department stores uh, catering to ordinary Japanese drew in crowds during the day, and then those crowds dispersed to cafes and bars at night. So you have this sort of cycle uh, between the department store and the cafe. Uh, <clears throat> urbanites and their flashy modern lifestyles are very quickly the object of rural anger as the countryside remained largely poor, dark, and left behind. Uh, and as my friend and fellow historian Carrie Smith wrote, the Ginza's bright lights brought little joy to farmers' hearts. Um, as I said, uh, you know, sc scholars have talked about World War I as transformational. Um, and so, for example, Fred Dickinson, who I've quoted before, uh, talked about the war uh, and its effects saying that uh, World War I transformed a small regional agrarian polity into a world-class empire and mass consumer society. In other words, Japan was kind of a backwater at the, you know, and it became a major uh, world power. Um, not everybody agrees with that assessment, uh, but it, I would add to, I mean, I think he's, I think he's right mostly, um, but I would add to that that you can really uh, argue that the transformation is not complete until after 1923, right? So a transformation that's kicked off by 
uh, World War One is only completed after 1923. Uh, it's difficult to sort of overstate the impact of the earthquake, and that's the major point I want to make here. Uh, one eyewitness later recalled seeing the carnage and destruction with his older brother, and so I want to quote from his uh, autobiography. The burned landscape had a brownish-red color. It looked like a red desert. Amid this expanse of nauseating redness lay every kind of corpse imaginable. I saw corpses charred black, half-burned corpses, corpses in gutters, corpses floating in rivers, corpses piled up on bridges, corpses blocking off a whole street at an intersection, and every manner of death possible to human beings displayed by corpses. When I involuntarily looked away, my brother scolded me. If you shut your eyes to a frightening sight, you end up being frightened. If you look at everything straight on, there's nothing to be afraid of. Uh, that little boy was Kurosawa Akira, the famous Japanese director. And he recalls this as an utterly formative experience for himself and also for his country. As I've said more than once uh, today, uh, and will probably say again before I'm done, the 1920s were complicated. Uh, 1925 was especially so. This is the year of both universal suffrage uh, for men, not for women, um, and also the peace preservation law, both of which we'll be talking about in a moment. Uh, it's also the year in which Kitazawa Rakuten, this renowned manga artist of the time, uh, produced this marvelously salacious account of an infamous trial uh, in the uh, manga newspaper, essentially news magazine, Jiji Manga. Uh, on October 11th, Rakuten drew a proper-looking Japanese couple looking askance at a flapper-like young woman in an audaciously confident post, uh, pose excuse me, with short, bobbed hair. The young woman is in the foreground, dominating the image, embodying a particular caricature of the modern girl, or moga, as she was called. Uh, her male equivalent was mobo, the modern boy. Never quite as important or famous. Anyway, uh, the caption, uh, which I've cut off here, but it's uh, translated uh, in one of, uh, so in a collection of his works uh, as follows. A 17-year-old girl with an uninhibited lifestyle shot a foreigner in the groin with a revolver, for he had not paid for the use of her body. Her behavior and her cool attitude at her court hearing drew much public attention. Since that incident, whenever you see a girl in Western fashion, you tend to think of the funny association. I'm not sure quite what's funny about shooting men in the groin, but apparently uh, maybe that's, well, maybe that's a minority opinion. Anyway, um, this image of the modern girl, not this particular woman, right? She's just a symbol, but this image of the modern girl is a fixture of the landscape of Japan's Roaring Twenties. The, the Roaring Twenties um, are most closely associated with American culture in that decade, American urban culture especially, but it's really a global phenomenon. Um, as Simon Partner has put it, throughout the world, newly emerging urban middle classes threw off the gloom of World War I by listening to jazz, studying Marx, cutting their hair short, agitating for female suffrage, and reveling in the spirit of modernism. Japan's new highly literate and cultured petit bourgeoisie uh, reveled in the, the new ideal of the Western-style family house and home, populated by a love-marriage partnership between a white-collar professional husband and his equally professional housewife spouse with two or maybe three children. 
these urban middle-class families enjoyed travel and dining out and reading a wide variety of cheap and easily available books and magazines and newspapers. So in 1925, the debut issue of a family magazine, a sort of general magazine called King, sold almost three quarters of a million copies. And after 1925, radio was added to this mix. But it's the, uh, th those things are you know, very important um, and they, they do have a certain sort of symbolic weight as well. But along with the department store, um, and with the uh, modern girl, for example, one of the other really important symbols of this era is uh, the cafe. It's no coincidence that both the cafe and department store are most closely associated with the Ginza district, which became the most fashionable place in Tokyo um, as it rebuilt after 1923. Uh, it's also where the first McDonald's and then Starbucks opened, if that means anything. Uh, not in the 1920s. Uh, so for younger Japanese, even after the post-quake department stores began offering more goods for everyday life, rather than just those high-end imported items we talked about, um, window shopping and strolling around the Ginza, or Gimbura, yes, there's a word just for strolling around the Ginza, was much more affordable, right? You just do window shopping. Uh, and, but that's what you do in day, the daytime, and then nighttime, different story. Cafes had been part of the urban landscape since at least late Meiji, uh, where they offered um, Western ambiance in which to enjoy Western food and Western cocktails, and they were primarily the sort of domain of artists and intellectuals and the like. But after 1923, new cafes sprung up to be enjoyed by patrons mainly from the new professional middle class, the so-called what we would now call the Sarariman class. And this period uh, saw the split between the kissaten, a cafe for enjoying food and maybe tea or coffee, and the cafe, where the main attraction was uh, a combination of jazz, alcohol, neon, and flirtatious waitresses. These cafe waitresses fulfilled a function uh, officially not unlike that of the uh, maids of uh, contemporary maido cafe, these maid cafes that you see around urban Japan now. Uh, many of the waitresses uh, reported, uh, self-reported, that they enjoyed the chance to earn decent money in an enjoyable job with significant freedoms and no factory labor drudgery. Not all of the waitresses were prostitutes and none of them were indentured. They weren't slaves like geisha or really, I mean, de facto like many women uh, working in the factories. But um, because many came from poor backgrounds and made only tips, uh, no wages, some of them did su supplement their incomes with prostitution. So it, it, it's not the main sort of thing here, but it is. it is, it did exist. Um, and this sort of... Uh, strengthened an association uh, of the, the waitress as this symbol of free, unbounded female sexuality. In other words, female sexuality that was not uh, beholden to a husband a or a pimp. Um, and it made them the target of anxiety and anger from more conservative government officials and social commentators. Um, prostitution was legal in Japan, and it was accepted for a lot of reasons, including the idea that, oh, men have uncontrollable appetites and you need bad girls to protect good women, and uh, the other idea that as long as prostitutes are basically owned and controlled by men and sending money home to their families, well, they're not threatening the preferred social order. If anything, they're 
reinforcing it. Um, so for all these reasons, prostitution remains legal and uncontroversial, but these women, because they're expressing their sexuality, whether through actual sex or just flirtation, uh, they're expressing it without being confined by rules made by men. Uh, that's threatening. And, and so they become a sort of uh, focus of a lot of angst and moral panic. Bureaucrats and the public tolerated prostitution in part because they believed it offered a necessary outlet for the sexual desires of men, uh, but that doesn't apply here. Uh, so by 1929, the official number of cafe waitresses exceeded about exceeded 50, 50, 50, excuse me, 50,000 uh, around Japan, uh, which was more than the number of licensed prostitutes. And though a significant number of waitresses um, did send money to home to their parents, uh, as did women factory workers, etc., that was different from their sort of public image. Uh, they were considered to be unfilial women of loose morals who threatened Japan's well-cultivated official ideology for women. Uh, these women threatened conservatives because they appeared to have control over their own lives and their own bodies. Uh, this was mostly an illusion in, in a lot of ways. Um, and also because they're not marrying and they're not contributing to the nation as obedient, patriotic wives and mothers. Uh, perhaps it goes without saying, but when politicians refer to women as birthing machines, and yes, the Japanese health minister did actually say that, uh, and they chastise women for, uh, recently by the way, and they chastise women for selfishly choosing not to get married and have children, um, this is a repetition of an old pattern, uh, and not just a Japanese one either. Uh, representative of the modern girl, uh, her potential for financial independence and sexual liberation appeared threatening to the good wife, wise mother ideal, which had really been official ideology since the 1890s. Um, that said, the Moga in particular was kind of a media construction more than anything else. The cafe waitress was you know, part of this larger symbolism, uh, but the Moga is mostly a media construction. That doesn't stop the, the real crackdowns on real women, though. Uh, the Meiji period cafe had already been sort of scrutinized as a hotbed of dangerous thought with all those students and artists and intellectuals there. Uh, this is not surprising. Um, but the addition of this, this female figure, the cafe waitress, uh, who's seen as associated with the, the, the Moga, aroused a lot of concerns in the government, the police, uh, social welfare uh, circles. Um, and the cafe in the 1920s became the sort of site par excellence of modern life, and as a result, it's targeted by the conservative Japanese police institution, increasingly uh, intervening in social life in an attempt to uh, stave off threats to officially sanctioned moral values and roles. Um, so whether these perceptions of cafe culture are accurate or not, Again, the crackdowns on cafes and dance halls and on the students and the women who either you know, were customers or uh, employees were real, consequential, and they were also escalating over time. In 1926, for example, 645 arrests were made in the cafes and bars of Tokyo, uh, and a dozen years later, it was more than 2,000 in a single night. The dedication to order and stability, uh, which, you know, sort of being manifested there uh, as the primary, you know, sort of goal of uh, the police state, because that's what it was, helps to explain why 
essentially democratically elected party politicians looked the other way and allowed in 1925 the Japanese Diet, the Japanese Parliament, to pass a shockingly repressive peace preservation law. Among other things, uh, this law made it a capital offense to criticize the emperor. In other words, you could be executed. Uh, and with communists and socialists clearly in mind, also banned criticism of the system of private property. One of its key provisions was the cons that uh, any conspiracy could also be penalized, even if it was just alleged conspiracy. So Article 1 of the law uh, concludes, and I want to read this uh, word for word because it's kind of amazing, an offense not actually carried out shall also be subject to punishment. This law was used as the justification for brutal crackdowns on labor and progressive movements and augured a darkly authoritarian turn in the coming decade of the 1930s. The inevitable anti-communist crackdowns began almost immediately, and you can actually see a picture of that here. Um, on the other hand, this is also the era of uh, the, both the birth of large-scale organized women's movements um, and a related suffrage movement. Um, gender is a topic uh, which I'm going to talk about in a separate lecture, uh, an optional lecture. Uh, for now, I just want to say that the women's movement in interwar Japan actually focused primarily on suffrage, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, but one of them is that the uh, other World War I allies had begun granting women uh, the franchise as part of their recognition of the importance of women to national strength and national defense. Uh, ultimately, uh, women in Japan don't get the vote until after World War II, but as if to testify to the complex, and there's that word again, sort of multiple forces at work in uh, the 1920s, adult men, men over 25, got the vote the same year as the peace preservation law, in other words, in 1925. So this really Orwellian peace preservation law is a watershed in the codification of repression in interwar Japan. Uh, it's a law that for many symbolizes, as much as any other development, the authoritarian, conservative backlash that eventually came to dominate in the 1930s. It's also a kind of compromise with ultra-conservatives who opposed expanding the franchise, even for men. Uh, because, you know, it starts out as only rich men actually have the vote. Um, in exchange for the priest preservation law, uh, law the anti-democratic, elitist old guard agreed to stand aside and let men 25 and up get the vote. Um, in other words, the two laws were an instance of uh, sort of horse trading, right? Uh, you know, back, backroom uh, deals between politicians, in which the fears of conservatives uh, were mollified by assurances that expanding the franchise wouldn't destabilize the nation with dangerous thought, which could be cracked down uh, upon with the peace preservation law, which essentially was a thought crimes law. Uh, the purpose of this law uh, was to curb dangerous thought uh, being spread by anarchists and communists and socialists. Uh, the prime minister, uh, who I mentioned earlier, Hara Takashi himself, said as early as 1910, by the way, that, quote, if people like teachers and policemen take even one false step, they might become socialists. Uh, so there is need to pay most attention to their treatment. The law was designed to punish anyone who either advocated revolutionary changes um, in the sort of national system or rejected the system of private property, as I've said. Uh, as with uh, you know, peace police or peace preservation, uh, you know, these are obviously these sort of 
Orwellian uh, phrases. Um, and you can sort of see that Orwellian element in, the, uh, in Article 1, uh, which is quoted here. Anyone who organizes a group for the purpose of changing the national polity, which essentially means the emperor system, uh, or of denying the private property system, or anyone who knowingly participates in said group, shall be sentenced to penal servitude or imprisonment not exceeding 10 years. And it, it, that's the initial uh, uh, version, and it's actually upgraded later to capital punishment. Um, and as I quoted before, uh, an offense not actually carried out shall also be subject to punishment. So there's a lot more that we could say about this, but uh, I think this is enough to sort of give a sense of some of the clashing, conflicting social forces in interwar Japan um, and how they related to the longer discourses and practices uh, of um, you know, gender ideology and culture and so on and so forth in modern Japan. Um, the most important thing, of course, is to remember that the interwar years are tremendously conflicted. On the one hand, you have party politicians advocating and pursuing multilateral internationalism, uh, many urban citizens and consumers embracing a new era of cosmopolitan, cosmopolitan sort of bourgeois capitalist modernity. And then on the other hand, you have reactionary conservatives threatened and angered by these challenges to the, 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 the power of the older system, uh, the social order, both at home and abroad. And these tensions are uh, made worse by the very difficult economic situation, especially in rural Japan, which becomes a backbone of support for authoritarian populist solutions to the difficult problems facing Japan. Okay, uh, next we're going to enter the so-called Dark Valley of the 1930s. Uh, those of you who are watching this on YouTube will notice that Hi, it's a new day. I changed and I forgot my glasses. Anyway, uh, we will be looking at the effects of the Great Depression and other economic setbacks uh, on Japan uh, and thinking about both the domestic and international aspects of that. We'll also be looking at the beginning of the Long War with China, uh, roughly from 1931, uh, depending on who you ask, really 1937. Uh, but. It kicks off with the Manchurian incident of 1931, uh, so we have to sort of tease out the prehistory and aftermath of this pivotal event in some detail. Uh, even though, to be fair, uh, the war only really escalates uh, uh, in 1937. Uh, we will end with um, getting ourselves right up to the uh, point where Japan is getting ready to make that uh, fatal uh, decision to open a second front in the war with the United States, in other words, attacking Pearl Harbor. Uh, we're going to talk about that in a future lecture. So, um, as I've just argued in the first half of this lecture, and I just want to go back to this, the 1920s was really a jumble of contradictory currents and events coexisting in an uneasy, precarious balance. So internationally, party politicians pursued uh, multilateralism, disarmament, etc., the Imperial Japanese Army, in particular, seethed with resentment about budget and troop cuts and increasingly was angry with the politicos selling out the country's national security. Domestically, you had universal male suffrage and the peace preservation law passed in the same year, 1925. Each one was a concession to a rival political force. Uh, suffrage, on the one hand, was an admission of the power of the people, uh, although it's uh, the failure to grant it to women says something also. Um, and the conspiracy law, the peace preservation law, was an effort to contain the power of those same people. 
So once again, as with the Meiji period, Japan has one foot on the gas and one foot on the brake. Young men and women in Tokyo uh, were window shopping all day and dancing and drinking all night in the Ginza, but farmers in the villages had barely seen any progress in their standard of living since the Edo period. Japan was a land and a nation divided. And it's in that context that we should begin thinking about the Great Depression. Uh, as most of you probably already know, the New York Stock Exchange crashed in October of 1929. As the spectacle of World War I and its resolution at Versailles had helped define the 1920s, Black Tuesday, as it was called, played an undeniably central role in determining the shape and direction of the 1930s. The international economic and political turmoil brought on by the global financial crisis, uh, which began in 1929, was exacerbated in Japan by, frankly, poor policy choices. Uh, and of course, it's very easy to second-guess them from 2021 much harder to have gotten them right at the time, and I recognize that. But in any case, the Japanese economy went into free fall. The result was, as much as I'd like to be fair about it, probably predictable, uh, in as much as severe domestic economic crisis nearly always causes a kind of desperate political upheaval. The real question was the degree to which the ensuing chaos would be directed inward versus outward. In the summer of 1929, a new cabinet was inaugurated in Japan. It implemented austerity measures almost immediately, tightening the money supply, reducing government spending, including on the military. And this was the first of two measures implemented to breathe life into a stagnant economy, which had plagued Japan throughout the 90s. Well, stagnant isn't quite the right word, right? It's this chaotic sort of up and down. If you average it out over the 1920s, it's stagnant. But in fact, as we've talked about, uh, it's really much more the chaos and instability that people feel. In any case, uh, we're talking about a remedy for the problems of the 1920s economy. So the second measure that's taken is the return to the gold standard. Japan, along with the Western powers, had abandoned the gold standard during World War I. And the hope was that returning to the sort of uh, to the gold standard, you know, club of great nations would help stabilize international trade and exchange. Uh, but there's also this sort of pride element to it, which may have influenced some poor decision making. With retrenchment apparently working to bring down inflation uh, at the end of the 1920s, uh, which you can see here uh, it, it, uh, on, in the middle of the 1920s, uh, it is definitely coming down. And then toward the end of the, the 1920s, uh, inflation uh, is actually dipping into deflation uh, after 1925. Um, and it's in this context uh, that Japan returned to the gold standard. And the results were catastrophic, especially for farmers. Austerity caused deflation of almost 10% in 1930 uh, to 31, and also caused a spike in unemployment. Any benefits which might have accrued to Japanese exporters from the return to the gold standard were erased by deep global deflation and the fixed exchange rate. It was, as always, the rural economy that was hit hardest. As G.C. Allen wrote around Japan, quote, the peasantry faced ruin. Farming household income dropped by half between 1929 and 31, and though industry recovered in the 1930s, for example, silk exports lost almost half of their value in 1930 alone. Cotton exports suffered similarly. And this is important because farmers around Japan were badly impacted. Uh, Nagano and the Tohoku region uh, took the brunt of this damage. Uh, Nagano was very dependent on sericulture, on silk, and uh, Tohoku was very dependent on rice. 
Small-scale landowners, unable to meet their tax burdens, evicted their tenants and began to farm their fields and paddies with family labor. Well, this created uh, enormous tension in the villages, including tenancy disputes, but the landlords had the upper hand. Labor disputes were also on the rise in other industries. Many family-owned and smaller-scale urban factories and shops failed by the thousands in the late 1920s, and the unemployment rate at the beginning of the 1930s, though difficult to determine precisely, was probably over 20% in the cities. Fired workers would often stage peaceful, if forceful, organized sit-ins and other protests, though in some cases a spark struck the tinderbox and violence ensued. Women, especially in the textile industry, participated in these demonstrations, and were just as forceful and just as violent as the men. The image of militant women protesters was, for many, another indication, along with the so-called MOGA, that the values and gender roles underpinning an orderly and prosperous society were falling apart. University students, too, engaged in major protests in the early 1930s, another sign that dangerous thought was eating Japan from the inside out. The Zaibatsu, these big <clears throat> industrial conglomerates that we've talked about, realizing that Tokyo would soon have to abandon the gold standard again, stockpiled dollars. Then, when the government did leave the gold standard, and that was in 1931, uh, they, which massively devalued Japanese currency, the Zaibatsu doubled their money by taking those big piles of dollars and exchanging them for yen. In the eyes of the public, the capitalists, uh, what, we might, what we might call the one percenters, had gleefully enriched themselves by manipulating the market at the same time that the rest of the country was suffering. Moreover, they had done so essentially by betting against Japan. As Andrew Gordon wrote, quote, This behavior reinforced the widespread belief that capitalists and their allies in the political parties were greedy and selfish. Social disorder and immorality appeared rampant. This sense was reinforced by bourgeois urbanites' apparent continued embrace of what many saw as a crass, flashy, hedonistic, and erotic culture epitomized by the cafes, as we talked about earlier. As Elise Tipton has pointed out, dread spread in conservative and rural circles that Japan was coming unhinged. Urban laborers, students, women, businessmen, and politicians were the enemies of the so-called silent majority, as Richard Nixon would later call them, uh, and that silent majority was quickly becoming less so. Change was in the air. But interestingly, when it came, it came from Manchuria, rather than from Japan itself, and transformed Japan from the outside in. As discussed in earlier lectures, uh, Japan's presence in Manchuria had begun with the Russo-Japanese War settlement in 1905. Russia, Russia and Japan divvied up influence in Manchuria in a series of semi-secret agreements reached between 1907 and 1916, and then abandoned by the new Soviet Union in 1917, with a Russian zone of special interest to the north and a Japanese zone similarly designated to the south. China's concessions to the 21 demands of 1915 solidified and increased Japanese rights in Manchuria. In which, uh, which in turn magnified this sense of Manchurian economic and political importance. This is how you get the idea of the uh, Manchuria as Japan's lifeline. The 1915 uh, treaty between Japan and China allowed Japanese subjects to reside and travel in South Manchuria and engage in business and manufacture of any kind, including agriculture. The treaty additionally made it possible for the Japanese to lease land for these purposes. These privileges, extended to no other nation, were interpreted by the Japanese to extend to more or less all of Manchuria. 
The fortifications of Port Arthur and the port city of Dalian were valuable to Japan, but the economic and strategic crown jewel of the Japanese holdings in Manchuria was the South Manchurian Railroad, known colloquially, colloquially by its Japanese abbreviation, Mantetsu. Mantetsu was a government-controlled organization, but enjoyed the backing of both public and private capital. It was, as Marius Jansen argued, the economic engine of imperialism in northeast China. It controlled coal mines at Anshan, Fushun, and Yantai, in addition to other mining, electrical, and warehousing enterprises. Along the railway, Japan controlled police, taxation, public facilities, and education. Its generous funding included provision for research activities that grew constantly in importance and enrolled the talents of some of Japan's best scholars. The security of this operation was delegated to the Kwantung Army, uh, which was the successor to a garrison which had been organized in 1906, again, to protect those sort of special Japanese interests after the Russo-Japanese War. In time, the army became, uh, the Kwantung Army, became a hotbed of radical thought and eventually of radical action. As I mentioned in the lectures on the interwar period, many army officers and enlisted men, as well as their civilian supporters, were deeply angered by Japan's military cutbacks and what they saw as weakness on the part of diplomats and politicians. But that wasn't all. They feared that Chinese nationalists would challenge Japan's hegemony in Manchuria, and they were infuriated by the cozy relations between Zaibatsu and parties back home, blaming the two for the, uh, and the sort of combination of the two, for the long economic crisis of the interwar, which drove many of their own families into poverty in the rural villages of Japan. The Kwantung army harbored a particularly large and particularly active faction of disillusioned young officers, and, though technically responsible to the army minister and general staff, was relatively isolated from, and therefore functionally semi-autonomous from, the brass in Tokyo on a day-to-day -day basis. So this is a, an era, of course, in which we don't have the sort of instantaneous communication structures that we do have now, so, which is why they had a great degree of independence. Uh, and then in 1928, the Kwantung army assassinated a Japanese-supported, Japanese-friendly Chinese warlord named Zhuang Zulin. Uh, Zhang Zuolin's train was bombed and the attack was blamed on Chinese rivals in the hope that Tokyo would take a more aggressive stance in Manchuria to expand Japanese interests. Zhang Zuolin uh, had been backed by the Japanese as a local buffer against the growing power of the nationalists, the Guomindang, or KMT, led by Chiang Kai-shek in the south. But it was feared that uh, Zhang's loyalties were shifting along with the balance of power in China. In other words, as the nationalists grew in strength, the, there was fear in Tokyo that Zhang Zuolin would essentially switch sides. While the Japanese were more willing to work with uh, Chiang Kai-shek than with the communists, uh, you know, led eventually by Mao Zedong, uh, because Chiang Kai-shek was, like Japan, uh, like Japan's elites, rapidly anti-communist, um, and also, it didn't hurt that Chiang Kai-shek had lived and trained in Japan before returning to China. The Japanese also wanted a friendly, powerful force between their own interest in Manchuria and Chiang, Chiang Kai-shek's capital at Beijing, so they wanted a, a sort of buffer. Zhang Zuolin's son, unimpressed by the rewards for his father's service to Japan, in other words, his assassination, pledged himself directly to the KMT. Uh, the situation had been made distinctly worse by the rash, unsanctioned actions of the Kwantung army. Um, and that's how, essentially, the thing that they're trying to prevent is exactly the thing that happens because of their actions. 
Um, here the emperor stepped in, uh, and somewhat uncharacteristically, and made things worse by pressuring the government not to publicly chastise the army. This was an ominous precedent, as Andrew Gordon rightly labeled it, uh, and it would play out in the worst manner imaginable in the 1930s. In 1930, uh, the signature, the signatories, excuse me, the uh, states' parties to the treaties signed in 1922 at the Washington Conference reconvened, as stipulated at their original meeting. Their purpose was to re-examine the 5-5-3 ratio of capital ships, which had been established in that uh, series of uh, pacts in 1922. The Japanese government issued what amounted to an ultimatum, that Japan would raise its tonnage from 60 to 70% of the British and Americans. In other words, a 10-10-7 ratio instead of 5-5-3. Tokyo only managed to extract minor concessions from Washington and London, which was a major failure and led to the lack of, loss of public confidence and the takeover of the Navy by the so-called Fleet Wing, which advocated just tossing out the treaties altogether. These two incidents were only symptoms of the waning popularity and sway of political party rule in Japan and the rise of more sort of authoritarian militaristic uh, impulses, I guess, and factions. The period which followed, characterized by the Manchurian incident abroad and the reign of government by assassination at home, would bring Japan's experiment with democratic parliamentary government to an end. In 1930, the Prime Minister was the first victim in the series of domestic terrorist attacks that included a failed coup in 1931 and the murder of the former finance ministry and one of the Zaibatsu chiefs the following year. The assassins in these cases were the civilian wingnuts who called themselves the League of Blood. Whether military or civilian, uh, these radical, violent criminals were part of an empire-wide network of clandestine study groups and associations that sought to eliminate both the political parties and their capitalist allies, and to restore the direct rule of the emperor. They spoke of a Showa restoration, along uh, using that rhetoric of the Meiji restoration, and they believed that it was their duty to remove the evil influences around the throne, in order to heal and restore the organic bond between emperor and people, and to allow Hirohito to rule directly and supremely. Marius Jansen's explanation is on point. In the late 1920s, a new and frequently lethal form of factionalism developed through associations formed by classmates of the military academy. These horizontal groupings, nurtured in nights of discussion lubricated by drink, produced men impatient with the caution of their superiors, and committed to simple solutions based on the assumptions that direct action to eliminate symbols of the old order would bring to power men more likely to be willing to take risks through decisive policies. These terrorists, for that is what they were, had no clear-cut program. As one explained to the court at his trial, we thought about destruction first. We never considered taking on the duty of reconstruction. This sentiment reflected the dissatisfaction of a broad coalition of military officers and soldiers, and their civilian allies, uh, and this was discontent with the hedonistic bourgeois capitalism that seems to be rending the national fabric in the post-quake 1920s. It also reflected their fear that Japan would be split into rich capitalists and party politician toadies on the one hand, and a mass of squalid proletariats on the other. This was, in addition, a symptom of the global and national economic climates. Japan saw other countries, Great Britain and the US for example, make the overnight schizophrenic switch from advocating free global trade and capitalist peace, to erecting trade barriers and building up autarkic uh, economic blocks. 
Japan of uh, Japanese of all political stripes and economic backgrounds saw Chinese nationalism threatening Japan's own economic lifeline and legitimate interests in Manchuria, and also feared the expanding power of the Soviet Union. Japan needed to secure its Manchurian holdings, at the very least, in order to remain strong enough to be independent and relevant as a world power, or at least this was the view of many uh, in, in Japan at the time. The Kwantung army was part of this network of highly nationalist, anti-Western, pro-autarkic, in other words, pro-autonomy thought. Perhaps the most interesting and important of these was Lieutenant Colonel Ishiwara Kanji. Ishiwara was a native of Yamagata, which was far from the army's sort of main line uh, of officers uh, from what used to be the Choshu domain in the Edo period. He graduated second in his class at the War College and subsequently studied in Germany. He harbored a powerfully apocalyptic millenarian view of an ever-escalating series of inevitable wars between the United States and Japan, the leaders of the West and Asia, as he thought it. In preparation, then, Japan had to develop Manchuria as a resource base capable of supporting the nation through war, first with the Soviets and then the Americans, and as a proving ground for the new social order that would strengthen Japan. After all, Manchuria was a vast land about as big as France and Germany combined, with a population estimated at about 30 million and a truly prodigious and largely untapped mineral wealth. As it was for many other rightist thinkers and activists, for Ishiwara, Manchuria's mineral resources had strategic value. He saw its fertile plains as a friendly destination for emigrant farmers, which would relieve population pressures and agrarian poverty at home. In addition, Ishiwara and his supporters saw Manchuria as a laboratory to create a new social order based on principles of social equity uh, and loyalty to the state, rather than selfish capitalist profit-seeking. He believed that successful experiments in Manchuria would strengthen Japan, as they were later implemented at home. In 1940, after the U.S. had moved its Pacific fleet to Pearl Harbor in response to growing Japanese aggression in Asia, Ishiwara gave a fiery speech to the Kyoto Prefectural Assembly on the subject of final war, in which he mixed his deep knowledge of world and military history, his fervent belief in the millenarianism of Nichiren Buddhism, and a generous dose of paranoid nationalism to argue that the mid-20th century constituted an era of unique significance for humankind. Simultaneously, he predicted that the coming war would not be a holy war between rancorous enemies, but rather an honorable clash between rivals for global hegemony. In any case, it was Ishiwara and like-minded men who carried out the fateful act of terrorism in 1931, which we call the Manchurian Incident. Uh, Ishiwara and his cohort, uh, like many in the army, were ideologically opposed to capitalism as well as communism, and advocated a sort of state-run economy that would build up heavy industry to extract resources, supported by a powerful military that would both protect and profit from that industry. Their vision was one of a statist military-industrial complex engaging in extractive capitalism without competition. Ishiwara proselytized other Kwantung army officers, beginning at a study group he hosted with his superior, uh, Itaga Kiseishiro, who was a colonel at the time, in the summer of 1929. And this study group eventually drafted a three-stage plan for a full Japanese takeover of Manchuria. In the days leading up to the Manchurian incident, the Kwantung army headquarters welcomed some well-funded ultra-right activists and managed to deflect the envoy sent by the general staff in Tokyo to shut down radical action. On September 18, 1931, by the time that envoy began making his rounds, 
the Guangzhou army had already detonated a bomb on the Mantetsu tracks just north of Mukden, and planted several corpses in Chinese uniforms to testify to their vigilance in defending the railway and Japanese interests. The so-called Chinese terrorists had, as the uh, the the Kwantung army put it, uh, threatened to destroy the uh, stability of Northeast Asia. So Japan was bound to restore that stability, and of course the Kwantung army would take the lead. Within hours, the Kwantung army had wiped out the local Chinese uh, armies and used the ever-expanding logic of national defense to justify a runaway offensive that gave Japan full control of Manchuria. Japan was in clear and open violation of the Nine Power Treaty of 1922, which affirmed the open-door policy, uh, which guaranteed China's sovereignty and also its territorial integrity. Japan was also violating the 1928 Kellogg-Briand Pact to outlaw war itself. All of this was in response to a trumped-up terrorist attack so minor that the next train reached Mukden on time. And you can see here, if you're watching on YouTube, the photograph uh, the part that is labeled is the damage to the tracks uh, that happened in this egregious terrorist incident. Uh, for those of you who are listening, you're not missing anything. Both the civilian government in Tokyo and the brass in the army ministry and general staff were shocked and horrified, at least on the surface. Uh, if the, the Tokyo elites had known well in advance that the Kwantung army was itching for some kind of direct action, and they had no grounds to be surprised at the events of autumn 1931. But the army's junior officers were thrilled that their brothers-in-arms were finally addressing the so-called Mammo Mondai, or Manchuria-slash-Mongolia problem. The army activists, in other words the terrorists in Manchuria, were little more than the most dramatic representatives of the widespread deep anxieties that permeated Japanese society in the 1920s. Right-wing ideologues harbored crushing fears of social change, and especially the rising power of women, students, laborers, socialists, and other dangerous elements of society. On the other hand, their concern for the plight of Japan's villages was at least mostly real, and largely based firmly in the harsh realities of modern Japan's uneven development, and the consequent urban-rural divide. Their calls and actions for a Showa restoration were motivated by genuine anxiety, fear, and angst about the direction of modern Japan, in other words. In the first days of January 1932, the Kwantung army took the strategically important port city of Jinzhou. A few days later, the foreign ministry and armed forces agreed to establish a nominally independent Manchurian state. This state became known as Manchukuo, or Manchukoku in Japanese. Early the next month, Japan took Harbin, firming up its hold on power in Manchuria. On March 1st, Japan announced the formation of Manchukuo officially, headed by Henry Puyi, the last descendant of China's pre-modern emperors uh, the, from the Qing dynasty. Puyi, who had been living in exile since being driven from the Forbidden City by Chinese warlords, may have been naive enough that he failed to fully understand his role as a puppet of the Japanese, and he may just have wanted a return to the good life of being an emperor. The League of Nations dispatched a commission to Manchuria in 1931 to investigate the alleged terrorist incident, and also the Japanese response. The Lytton Commission, which was named for its chair Edward Robert Bulwer Lytton, first Earl of Lytton, who also, by the way, was a poet who published under the pen name Owen Meredith, uh, finally filed its report in late 1932. This was a remarkably conciliatory document, all things considered. 
Lytton and his commission bent over backward, forward, and sideways to avoid upsetting prickly Japanese national pride. Throughout this review of the issues, we have insisted less on the responsibility for past actions than on the necessity of finding means to avoid their repetition in the future, reads one passage. Another notes that the Chinese and Japanese accounts of the incident are, not unnaturally in these circumstances, different and contradictory. It was the conclusion of the commission that, quote, the military operations of the Japanese troops cannot be regarded as measures of legitimate defense, uh, self-defense, excuse me, which sent Japanese diplomats, politicians, military men, and to some extent the public into convulsions of anger. Even before the Lytton report, Japan had officially maintained that the Manchurian incident was a legitimate exercise of the right to self-defense. In other words, it was a necessary response to destabilizing insurgents threatening Japan's legitimate national interests. In a speech to the Diet not long before the Lytton Commission's report was finally released, for instance, the Japanese foreign minister had laid out Japan's case like this. For over 20 years, Japan has continued to exercise the greatest patience and moderation in the hope that someday China might soberly undertake the task of rehabilitating her fortunes and playing her proper role in the maintenance of peace in the Far East. China failed, however, to show any sincere desire to reciprocate our goodwill and kindly sentiments, but increased more than ever in her arrogance and intolerance. Our government took pains time and again to preserve the patience of the Japanese people, but China did not heed our warnings. The incident of September 18th occurred in Manchuria, the very region regarded as the first bulwark of Japan, at the precise moment when the feeling of our people had been wrought up to the highest pitch by repeated provocations. We had no alternative other than to resort to measures of self-defense. And this position was maintained consistently thereafter, even in the face of the Lytton Report. The League of Nations' reasonable conclusion that Japan's military takeover of Manchuria and establishment of Manchukuo had been an overreaction, was met with outrage and defiance. Japanese diplomats attempted to paint their country as the victim of an international conspiracy, in other words, as a sort of martyr. The foreign ministry, the inimitably bombastic, self-assured, and frankly annoying and dumb Matsuoka Yosuke, compared Japan to Jesus himself when he stormed out of the League with his delegation. Formal withdrawal came in March 1933, making a sharp turn toward unilateralism and international isolation. Matsuoka's shocking declaration and dramatic walkout was reported around the world, uh, and if you're interested, you can see it on YouTube, uh, among other places. His last speech at the podium is masterful propaganda, uh, and it's worth checking um, the, the whole thing. Uh, I'm just going to share parts of it here, though. Quote, it is a source of profound regret and disappointment to the Japanese government, he raged, that the draft report has now been adopted by this assembly. He concluded, it is a matter of common knowledge that Japan's policy is fundamentally inspired by the genuine desire to guarantee peace in the Far East and to contribute to the maintenance of peace throughout the world. Japan, however, finds it impossible, he continued, to accept the report adopted by the assembly, and she has taken pains to point out that the recommendations in the report cannot be considered, such as would secure peace in that part of the world. The Japanese government will, however, make their utmost efforts for the establishment of peace in the Far East, and the maintenance and strengthening of cordial relations with other powers. I need hardly add that the Japanese government will persist in their desire to contribute to human welfare, and will continue their policy of cooperating in all sincerity in the work dedicated to world peace. 
Japan continued its ostensible dedication to world peace, as Matsuoka had put it, by pressing forward in Manchuria, annexing land as far as the Great Wall by May 1933. By June 1935, Japan controlled the land south of the Great Wall, where it set up warlord puppet regimes, forcing the Kuomintang, the nationalists under uh, Chiang Kai-shek, to withdraw even from their capital in Beijing. Obviously, Japan's abrupt exit from the international community and continued aggression in northern China ratcheted up tensions uh, with the major Western powers. On the other hand, the army's successes were greeted with ecstasy at home by a jingoistic press and breathless public. While politicians and bureaucrats feared, with reason, that the Kwantung army was on the verge of breaking away and becoming an independent political entity, Ordinary Japanese thrilled to their early victories, repairing and restoring national pride and purpose, which had been so badly hurt by the economic downturn of the 1920s, um, and also the sense that Japan was run by self-serving, corrupt, one-percenter capitalists and their political lackeys. Japan hungered for victories, and the army supplied them. Public approval was manufactured and made to matter by the media. As far back as the Sino- and Russo-Japanese wars, war reportage, from news stories to postcards to woodblocks and photo albums and more, had been influential in shaping the national mood vis-à-vis war. This was a reciprocal relationship. A victorious war sells, and for many reasons, wars are more often successful when they sell, when they have broad public support, in other words. And the same held true for the symbiosis between press and people. The press was tremendously important to national self-images in ultra-literate Japan, even outside the context of war. As Louise Young wrote, booksellers promoted militarism for profit. Popular magazines opened their pages to army spokesmen in order to capitalize on the Manchurian fever. And publishing giant Kodansha turned its empire of high-circulation magazines into a cheering gallery for the Kwantung army. War anthems dominated the airwaves, and cinemas and playhouses were taken over by works of overtly militaristic themes. As Young concluded, crisis in the empire, the heroism of battle, and the glory of sacrifice were the message of the Manchurian incident theme uh, theme products that poured forth from Japan's culture industries, dominating the mass media in 1931 and 1932. In other words, the war sold. Once Manchuria was in Japanese hands, it became a frontier full of endless opportunities. In other words, free land a la the American West. Capital flowed into Manchuria to develop this new frontier, but it was generally not the free market kind. Both government bureaucrats and uh, military planners believed competition was wasteful and inefficient on the one hand, and divisive on the other. And this idea of division is key here. Uh, It was the division of resources that was inefficient, and the division of agendas that was immoral and disruptive. In any case, Manchuria was, for a time, a land of seemingly endless resources, careers, opportunities. Urban planners laid out modern cities with wide boulevards and spacious parks, cities impossible in cramped Japan. Academics found work at the new nation-building university in the Manchukuo capital, Shinking or Shinkyo in Japanese. New rail lines were planned and laid down to supplement Mantetsu's tracks and also the China Eastern Rail Line uh, acquired from the Soviets in 1934. Tourism flourished too, bringing jobs in hotels and service industries. Planned rural emigration began in 1932 with a five-year trial plan, which resettled about 322,000 Japanese in Manchuria for the purpose of farming. 
the initial five-year plan was successful uh, enough to be succeeded by a series of planned mass migrations, which continued throughout the war, uh, even up to 1945. Uh, and these were uh, uh, successful also, uh, though with far lower numbers than the military and civilian authorities had envisioned. These policies were paired with the domestic farm, mountain, and fishing village economic revitalization campaign, which was the largest pre-war state intervention in the rural economy. Uh, this also took effect in 1932. The successes of this program were translated into an ambitious program for uh, mass migration, the Community Emigration Program, which was implemented in 1936 to facilitate mass resettlement. This was its own kind of total mobilization of the village economic and political systems. It was designed to place a million settled households, uh, about five individuals in each household for a total of about five million people, uh, in a new utopia sold to the public at home with images of free land and land of opportunity, which again paralleled the mythologies of the American West. Despite the rhetoric about and government campaigns to promote agricultural settlement in Manchuria, uh, emigration to farm made up less than 15% of the total. Now, there is a lot to say about Manchukuo, but maybe the most important thing is that in a desperate time, with the global depression and Japan crashing out of the League of Nations, Manchukuo seemed to be a major success with great promise for the future of Japan. In other words, it seemed like Manchukuo worked, and therefore that imperial autarky and Japan's plans to expand its self-sufficient colonial bloc were working, too. Remember that Japan's interests in Manchuria were long-standing, and they had been pursued very aggressively since the 1910s with the 21 demands, etc. In 1920, Japanese corporations invested almost a billion yen in Manchuria already, more than the total in Korea and Taiwan combined. This is why Manchuria was considered Japan's lifeline. So uh, let's stop here uh, and do a bit of a summary of the lecture thus far. So the first half of the lecture uh, focused on the convoluted, complicated cultural currents of the interwar years in Japan proper. Uh, and that's the most important thing to remember. The interwar years were tremendously complex and conflicted, as I've said over and over again. Uh, the you know, so On the one hand, you have party politicians who are looking to advocate and pursue uh, multilateral internationalism, uh, and you have urban citizens and consumers embracing a new era of cosmopolitan bourgeois capitalist modernity. Then on the other hand, you have reactionary conservatives threatened and angered by these challenges to the power of the older social order, both at home and abroad. These tensions are exacerbated by the difficult economic situation, especially in rural Japan, which becomes a backbone of support for authoritarian solutions to the difficult problems which Japan faced. In the second half of the lecture, we shifted gears to focus on the Manchurian incident, uh, including its sort of causes and, to some extent, its effects. The Manchurian incident gets its own sort of section all to itself because it's really a pivotal event. It's the end of the 1920s era of internationalism and multilateralism uh, and the beginning of the 1930s era of isolation, unilateralism, and a long self-destructive war. Uh, I've tried to place the incident within the social, political, and economic currents of the prior decade, uh, as well as the international economic crisis emanating from the 1929 collapse of the American Stock Exchange, in other words, the Great Depression. 
for a fractured, divided, anxious Japan, the lightning victories of the Kwantung army were intoxicating. Victory brought unity and pride where there had only been division and doubt. It brought national security and national strength where there had been fear and weakness. The irresponsible terrorists of the Kwantung army and their domestic allies uh, pushed their warmongering agenda on the home front with government by assassination, and this gave Japan confidence and purpose. As Erihoto wrote of the war in its later stages, most Japanese were inclined to see it as a war of liberation, not only for Japan, but for the whole of Asia. Who would not prefer to believe that one was dying for a meaningful cause, rather than a misguided one? And of course, this is not a Japan problem as such. 